Amen. Let us turn our confessional reading this night. Let's turn to page 220 from question and answer one of Lord's Day 1. We go to Lord's Day 19, question and answer 50, uh, 51, and 52. Continuing that portion of the Catechism, which works through the Apostles' Creed, and it is a it is a very ancient practice to uh, work through the Creed. We have records of of some of the earliest sermons we have records of. Churches would work through the Ten Commandments, the Apostles' Creed, the Lord's Prayer, and when we're working through the Catechism. That's a huge part of what we do. So we work through those three things. Well, here's the last lines of the Apostles' Creed on the Son, Jesus Christ. I'll read the questions. Let's together say the answers. Question 50. Why the next words, and sits at the right hand of God? Christ ascended to heaven, there to show that he is head of his church the one through whom the Father governs all things. How does this glory of Christ our head benefit us? First, through his Holy Spirit, he pours out gifts from heaven upon his members. Second, by his power, he defends us and preserves us from all enemies. 52. How does Christ's return to judge the living and the dead comfort you? In all distress and persecution, with uplifted head, I confidently await the very judge who has already offered himself to the judgment of God in my place and removed the whole curse from me. Christ will cast all his enemies and mine into everlasting condemnation, but will take me and all his chosen ones to himself into the joy and glory of heaven. That's the confession we hold in common. Let us turn now to the very word of God, Colossians chapter 1. And we're going to look especially at verses 15 to 20, but we'll begin our reading at verse 3. Colossians chapter 1, page 1,251. The Bible's under the seats. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, each successive one a little bit shorter than the one before. That's how they used to make a collection of letters. You order it from the longest one to the shortest one. Colossians chapter 1, we begin our reading at verse 3. We'll read through verse 23. Let us hear the word of God. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, 
since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So far the reading. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, we do not see the phrase, sit at the right hand of God, in Colossians 1. We see that in other texts in the New Testament. But we do see a description of that position in Colossians 1. For to sit at the right hand of God means to sit in the position of divine power. I'm just going to read two verses from the Old Testament that express this. Exodus chapter 15, verse 6. Your right hand, O Lord, 
glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. And then uh, two verses from Isaiah 48 as God speaks through his prophet directly and says, listen to me, Isaiah 48, verse 12 and 13. Listen to me, O Jacob and Israel, whom I called. I am he, I am the first, and I am the last. My hand laid the foundation of the earth, and my right hand spread out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand forth together. This is divine power and authority. No mere man can exercise the judgment of God. No mere man can claim creative power, the creation of the world. Of course, man was not made until the very end of the creation week. And, uh, and the, the lack of power is a whole other problem. And so this is the right hand of God. This is a position that no mere man could ever sit in. This is the position of divine power and authority. And this is the position which, in terms of the Trinity, the second person, Jesus, the Son of God, sits in. This is the authority of Christ. He has ascended into heaven. And as one who is not mere man, but who is man and God, he sits in that position and he exercises that divine authority and power. And that's our theme tonight. Jesus is the ruler of all. And then there's a lot of focus on life. And so I added the word life. But really we could just say Christ Jesus is the ruler of all. We're going to first uh, look at Christ, the ruler of all creation. And then second, we're going to focus on Christ, the ruler of the church. Well, here we are in verse 15, Christ, the ruler of all creation. Uh, but before we get to that explicit statement, we read something of, of who he is. He is the image of the invisible God. Now, there's a couple of things going on when we read the image of the invisible God. One of those is the fact that God is spirit and so God is invisible. But when God came in the flesh, Jesus Christ was visible. People saw Jesus in the flesh. That's part of what this verse is telling us. But then uh, we might say that doesn't mean very much to us in the sense that we don't know what Jesus looked like. There's no accurate depiction of him. It is meaningful because it's God incarnate and what he accomplished in the flesh. But as far as a visible image, that's, that part's not very helpful to us in 2023. But there is more that is going on here. It is also... Uh, not just that something can be visibly seen, but to be made in the image of God is supposed to be, is meant to be, was originally to be made in what Ephesians 4 verse 24 calls righteousness and holiness. And so when it says he is the image of the invisible God, 
we shouldn't just think in terms of visible, invisible. We should think in terms of here is the only true image bearer of God because what happened to the true righteousness and holiness that Adam were made in? They fell. They fell into sin. The image of God has been marred on each and every one of us who has descended from Adam and Eve ever since, with only one exception, the second Adam true man, the true image bearer. He is the image of the invisible God in more ways than one. Jesus Christ is like no other. And then we read this, the firstborn of all creation. And here is one time when I am very glad that I am not a Bible translator. There's other times when I'm very glad that I'm not a Bible translator, but this word is one of those times. Because the word here is firstborn in the English, and the word in the Greek is firstborn. And so it seems like a very easy translation decision. But the problem is, in English, we really only have one meaning for this word, but in Greek, it's used in more than one way. And so what do you do? Well, the ESV translated it firstborn, and so do most translations. But we should know that this word, the Greek word behind it, speaks about more than just how we think of firstborn. What do we think of when we hear firstborn? We think, in, in our English 2023 American mind, we think almost exclusively of chronology, of time, of the firstborn child in a family. Maybe if we would go back a little further and we would think of how the firstborn child has been viewed in many cultures, including English-speaking cultures in the past, we would be getting the, the bigger picture. And here I'm going to use a very old word that we don't really use anymore, primogeniture. What is primogeniture? That refers to the firstborn having a priority, having a position of power. The firstborn got all the inheritance especially the firstborn son. It's been very common in many cultures in many times. And that's, that's all part of what's behind the Greek word. It is, it is not just a, a chronological, and sometimes it's not chronological at all. It's just being used to speak about a primary place, supreme. So the New Living Translation is not my favorite English translation of the Bible, but here I like the the New Living Translation at the end of verse 15. Supreme over all creation. And we'll come back to this word firstborn in our second point. So he is supreme. He is the one with priority over. He is the one with authority over all things. And that means all things. For by him all things were created, verse 16, in heaven and on earth visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority, all things were created through him and for him. When the Apostle Paul wrote this, as uh, Reverend Nipama uh, once said in a, in a sermon on this text, he was not just expressing theological truths. He had a very specific pastoral purpose in mind. 
And we see that in chapter 2. I want you to look at just one verse with me. Chapter 2, verse 15. Chapter 2, verse 15 of Colossians. He, that is Christ, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Who are the rulers and authorities? Those are the creatures of the invisible realm. Specifically here, the evil creatures of the invisible realm, the fallen angels, the demons. Now, we know, we read through all of Colossians, and Colossians 2 verse 15 summarizes it there, that the people in the church in Colossae was struggling with that reality. They were struggling with the power of demons. They were troubled by the power of demons. The invisible realm was hovering over them and causing them to fear. So the Apostle Paul is not just expressing theological truths here. He he has a purpose in mind. This is leading into chapter 2. This is leading in to his application to the church in Colossae. You do not need to be afraid of the invisible authorities. They exist, but God made them. God is still the ruler over them. You know, today, we need to hear this same truth for exactly the opposite reason. Because what happens today? Today, the invisible realm is denied completely. It's no longer the demons are there and they're so powerful that you need to to tremble under their power. No, today... The message that we hear again and again is, can't see it, it doesn't exist. Evil spirits don't exist. You don't need to be worried about demons. Angels, spirits who are not fallen, they don't exist. God, he doesn't exist. Instead of living in an overly spiritualized age, we live in the under-spiritualized age. We need to hear exactly the same truth, even if we probably need to hear it for precisely the opposite reason. Christ made it all. There is one true invisible God, even as the eternal Son came as the image of the invisible God. And he made all all things, everything you see and all of the invisible realm. God has all authority. He made all things. It is true that there is now rebellion against God, both in the invisible and the invisible realm. When did the angels fall? Well, sometime after day six, because in day six, God had created all things visible and invisible, created the heavens and the earth. And at the end of it, everything was very good. Sometime between day six and the fall, the angels fell 
and then the temptation of the devil plays a part in the fall of humanity and the visible realm. And so it is true, there is rebellion against God, both in the invisible and the visible realm, but God made it all and he continues to have authority over it all. He continues to have authority over it all. It is his power that sustains all things. Verse 17, and he is before all things and in him all things hold together. There is nothing on this visible earth that could continue to exist apart from the sustaining power of God that upholds it every second of every minute of every day. There is no invisible, uh, there is no creature of the invisible realm that would not continue to exist apart from the sustaining power of Jesus Christ. He made it all. He sustains it all. He has authority over it all. Even as he is allowing, permitting rebellion to exist in various forms, we need not fear. We need not fear the rebellion in the visible or the invisible. He has authority over all. And so we come to our second point because if he has authority over it all and there's rebellion against him, what is the only answer? The only answer is to repent, to be reconciled and to serve him. And as we would repent of our sins, trust in Jesus Christ, then there is not only, there's not only this authority which arches over all, but there's now a special authority there's now an authority of special presence for his church. Uh, point two, Christ, ruler of the church. Verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church. Christ uh, was all of these things. Christ always had authority over all creation. And Christ had authority over the church as soon as he established it. But his ascending into heaven. And Christ really has a body, and his body really made that ascension. His ascension shows this authority. The ruler of the church is the God-man who sits in the place of divine authority. He rules over everything, and he rules in a special way over his church. He is the head of the body, which is the church. Can the body work the way that it is supposed to work apart from the head? Can the body have life if it is cut off from the head? By no means. We must have our direction from the head. We must have our life from the head. And as those who would not just be part of the visible and invisible realms under the authority of Christ, whether we recognize it or not, but as those who would be reconciled to him, as those who would be his people, see the, see the power and the urgency of this message. The urgency of this message is so plainly illustrated by thinking about what happens to part of the body when it's removed from the head, when it's removed from the body as a whole. Uh, you know, I, um, 
I didn't mean to make all of the illustrations today about young daughters, but this time it's not about my own daughter, it's about the daughter of, of one of my friends. And uh, I remember one time, uh, I think it was a Monday or a Tuesday, whatever it was, early in the week, I go into the library at Mid-America Seminary and I ask the librarian, how did your weekend go? As I would often do, Bart was a very friendly man. And uh, this time I got a very eventful answer. Because the Sunday before, his daughter was playing at church with other children in the church and things got a little bit wild and a door got slammed uh, way too hard and way too fast and a finger came off from the slamming of the door. Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the the church is a body with many members and there it doesn't mention fingers but it mentions the hand and the eye and the feet and Christ is the head of the body well what happens when part of the body when part of the body is removed from the head and from the rest of the body is the finger going to receive any instruction from the head now is it going to be able to do any of the tasks that the head directed to do as our head so often directs our fingers to do things in every part of the day? No, it is, it is in a very, very dire situation. And when that happens, when you are removed from the church, when you choose to not participate, not to be a member, not to come to the body of Christ, when you say, no, I don't need the head, and I don't need his body, I don't need his church, how do, you, how do you respond? Does, does a father come and see that the finger of his child has been taken off in a door and say, oh, well, that doesn't change our day at all. We don't need to do anything about that. Or is this a very urgent situation where you say, well, whatever plans we just had, this is now our plan. This is what requires our attention because the finger needs to be part of the body. And it needs to be under the direction of the head. Otherwise, it's never going to do anything useful ever again. And so it becomes an urgent situation and you rush to the hospital and you put the finger back on and, and thankfully there was a successful surgery. These are, these are the kinds of pictures that God's word gives to us of the church. Christ is the head. We need his direction. Without the head, we have no life. We have no way to fulfill our purpose. And apart from him, we are in dire situations. And we will not ever be useful again. Christ is the head of the body, the church. He is the authority. We need his authority. It is absolutely critical. And in him, in him, you know, your finger, think of all the things that your finger does in a week. 
Does your finger do that by itself? No, it's directed by the head. In him we are useful, and in him we are reconciled, and in him we have life. And so now we move beyond just the fact that life has been created. He's the firstborn of all creation in verse 15, and now we we move into resurrection life. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Now remember, I said we'd come back to this word firstborn. And remember that I said in in the Greek, it, it, it has two ways it can be used. It can be speaking about that which is supreme, that which is authority, or it can be used the way that, that we use it, speaking about that which comes first, the oldest one, the first one to come. Notice that in verse 18, it's being used in both ways. We have the temporal language. We have the chronological language. He is the beginning. Here there's an actual start to these things. Because, because, because of why? Because there was an actual beginning of resurrection life. Where does res- resurrection life start? It begins on the first resurrection Sunday. As the grave is empty and Christ is risen. He is the beginning, the firstborn, and here that has temporal significance. There is one man who went to the cross to pay for our sins, to reconcile us to God. And there is one man whose body conquered death. Because he was the God-man and he had authority to lay down his life and he had authority to take it up again. And it's not like any other resurrection in the Scriptures because this is the resurrection body. Christ will never die again. That is the firstborn of the dead. That is the firstborn of resurrection life. But there's also authority in view. Both of the meanings of the Greek word are in view, and we see that at the end of verse 18, that he might be preeminent. He is the supreme one. We will have resurrection bodies as we trust in Jesus Christ. But we will never be fully like Christ exactly. He will always have authority unto himself. Even the language of of crown in Revelation, they will have their crown. The the focus there is is on the crown that's earned at the end of of the race. It's not the, the crown of authority. Not precisely. He will always be the one of full divine authority. He is preeminent. He is the firstborn in every way of his church for all who trust in him. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. He is the one who was completely God, even as he was completely man. And through him to reconcile to himself all things. Now this is tying our text back together. This is taking us back to the truth that his, he is the creator of all in some ways. Although the benefit of the reconciliation of everything will only be for Christ's elect. It will only be for his bride, the church for whom he died. And the focus of scripture again and again is on the reconciliation of sinners to Christ. Because 
We are the ones who are made in God's image. We are the ones who are are broken in sin, and that is that is that is the first issue that Scripture addresses. We are broken. We need reconciliation. We have reconciliation in Christ, as we trust in Him. But once in a while, Scripture goes beyond that and talks about how the reconciliation won by Jesus Christ is not just that He fixes what is broken in His elect but he will also, for the benefit of his elect, not everyone will have the benefit of this, for the benefit of his elect, he will also fix everything that was broken in the fall. And that's not just mankind, that's this entire earth. This entire earth, the entire created order is broken. There is death, the disease, famine. There's sin. And that's that's the primary thing that's addressed in Scripture. But there's also the groaning of the whole creation, and all of it will be reconciled. And so may the first thing we know be that we are broken, we are sinners, we need reconciliation in Jesus Christ. But may we may we rejoice in the further truth that Christ reconciles all things to Himself, because as He saves us. He also saves that which is under our dominion. And so, question and answer 52 is a beautiful summary of the truth of the benefits that we have in Christ, but it's a summary and Colossians 1 is taking us beyond the end of question and answer 52. Because the end of question and answer 52, it's it's focused on the the fact that um, there is joy and glory of heaven. And Colossians 1 takes us beyond that. It's telling us about the reconciliation of all things, about the coming new heavens and new earth where all of the broken things will be renewed, reconciled, restored, back into harmony. Surely, brothers and sisters, may we have, going to the beginning of question and answer 52, a confident awaiting. The beginning of question answer 52, the answer in all distress and persecution with uplifted head, I confidently await the very judge who has already offered himself to the judgment of God in my place and removed the whole curse from me. He's removed the whole curse from me and he's going to remove the whole curse from the whole created order. Please turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Again, the main focus of Scripture is on our own brokenness and our own need for Christ. But we have times where the Scriptures speak about the restoring of the whole creation. And that is sprinkled all through the Scriptures in various ways. Simply say that it's not only Noah and his family that are saved on the ark. God also saves his created order in a sense there. But here we talk about future and perfect restoration of all things. Romans chapter 8, verses 18 to 23. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. 
For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Why is that image used? Well, one, because it's an image of great pain, but also because it it takes us back to the curse. What's one of the explicit things said at the curse? There will be pain in, in childbearing. The Apostle Paul uses this as a picture of the pain of the whole creation. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And our hope, brothers and sisters, is not only in our own salvation, but it's also in the whole created order being restored. I I love Isaiah 11, Isaiah 65. We get we get brief prophetic glimpses because we really can't understand, so it can only be given to us in prophetic language of the glories of the new Jerusalem, of the new heavens and the new earth. Harmony of the whole created order that does not exist now. But God reconciles sinners to himself. He reconciles this whole earth to himself. And he can do this for he has all authority over all things visible and invisible. Over your very soul repent of your sins, you trust in Him, there is reconciliation. He accomplishes it. He accomplishes it over all of this broken earth. You wait for something better. You think that it's a mess all around. It is a mess. But He will reconcile everything. And His elect will share in those great blessings. Amen. Let us pray. Lord of lords, King of kings, may...